the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of Machine Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Terry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, consider tossing us a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Or if you'd like, you can also leave us a positive review on iTunes. And today we are happy to bring to you our guest, Charles J. Stavall, who has co-translated Deleuze's Logic of Sense, as well as translated Deleuze's eight-hour interview, lovingly known as the Abbasadere or the ABCs of Deleuze. You can find that on YouTube. We'll have that in the, in the show notes. And he's also published widely in Deleuze and Guattari studies. Was it Deleuze or was it Guattari that, that said, was it Guattari that said Guattari. we're not pals? Yeah. Yes, Guattari. Yeah. I always found that interesting. Yeah. Especially yeah, because always... there's some, I recall there's being some, maybe it's in the anti-Oedipus papers where Guattari writes about, to Deleuze about Foucault and his critique of Foucault. And he's like, your buddy, your buddy Foucault, blah, blah, blah. Right. I don't remember okay. the specifics, but something along those lines. Well, Charles, you were gonna you were gonna say something. Do you have a do you have a take on on what? Well, I was just you know I was always puzzled, particularly in light of Francois Duss's you know compendium, you know mm-hmm. the the bios, how it seemed like Deleuze needed Guattari at the time that Guattari needed Deleuze, mm-hmm. and I'm not really sure to the extent Guattari really needed Deleuze at that time, but I think Deleuze was in a it's kind of an impasse. You know, he'd reached a point where he really wanted to. You can sense he wanted to dislodge. Mm-hmm. his comfort zone um, a bit. And so that meeting that they had, I believe it was in 69, you know, I was wondering how, you know, quickly this collaboration became more of an ordeal for Perry than, uh, you know, a real pleasure because uh, you <laughs> know, when you, when you read the anti-Oedipus papers, you realize, you know, that Deleuze seemed to be a hard task master. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. So it was, it was just something that uh, struck me as as they went along. And and the other thing that was always amazing when you read the anti-Oedipus papers is the extent to which they had so much of A Thousand Plateaus already written by the time anti-Oedipus came out, you know, and, and before, you know, before the anti-Oedipus papers, you're wondering, like, I mean, I was wondering, well, yeah. you know, boy, that period between 72 and 78 was really productive. And, and then you look at the anti-Oedipus papers and realize, no, these guys were they were just cranking stuff out between them while it was fresh. And uh, so a lot of it, you know, it was just, uh, well, let's kind of hold back on the good stuff. And uh, and so it kind of puts paid to that image of Deleuze and Guattari as anti-Oedipus being the, the sort of uh, letting go, unloosening of uh, flows, and then mm-hmm. a thousand plateaus being the pulling back and caution. When in fact, they were all pretty much on the same page I believe uh, I'm not just, I mean, you have to 
one would have to do kind of a almost you know, philological analysis. Mm -hmm. See, mm -hmm. for example, if the chapter on uh, the plateau on uh, the body without organs in a thousand plateaus was, in fact, you know, sort of, well, let's slide in a little cautionary stuff here in the, you know, making yourself a body without organs because things have gone a little sideways with the reaction to uh, anti Oedipus. But then again, I don't know. I mean, I think that they really had a lot of that already in mind as a whole as they were moving forward. So I think that's a really great point that I even overlooked is how much they already were looking forward to the sequel. I mean, the fact that anti Oedipus comes out titled as being one of two volumes means that they at least had that initial notion that this is merely the start of something that isn't yet completed. So they had that intuition. And as you said, they had a bulk of that writing. And I believe Guattari discusses many times the method that they used where Deleuze is kind of demanding Guattari to just to write every night, you know, and, and as you said, drove him kind of like, like a taskmaster. I think the one question I had was you pinpoint this one tense moment where Claire Parnay in the interviews, in the Abbasidaire, the ABC interviews, which the listeners, you can find it on YouTube. And it's it's got... Uh, I'll link got, that in the show notes as well. Yeah, it's got subtitles in English, so don't worry for the Anglophones. But she, and I hadn't thought about this because I had always heard about how impactful the book was it, it sold fairly well it had some immediate resonances but the question she's asking is about do you think the book was allowed for a kind of permissiveness towards maybe drug use or towards freeing the schizophrenic flows and she really does seem to push him on this point am i missing some context here about how is this how the book was derided or or, or maybe harsh critics were saying this is a book that's that's kind of, you know, God is dead, everything's permitted, you know, go and do your drugs and go deterritorialize. I suppose not having that context for that time period and for the French reception. Do you know anything about, about what Parnay was getting at with? First and foremost, she's trying to get some kind of reaction out of Deleuze. Yeah. All right. So that's, she knows that that's a, that's going to be like sticking a, a fork in them. Um <laughs> Going back to the late 60s, early 70s, one of the reasons that the book was so such a bomb was because that they dared to say something not anti-Lacanian, but nonetheless, they had their own thoughts about psychoanalysis that weren't, weren't strictly Lacanian. And they dared to say things that were clearly not necessarily anti-Marxist, but nonetheless didn't toe any kind of particular kind of line. So we take just those two kind of isms that they were, they knew that they weren't saying anything really terribly radical. It was just the context that, that made it radical. So then gotcha. subsequently in the context of, of the politics of the, the French university system, it was there that the kind of rhetoric of permissiveness mm. was um, useful for people who wanted to criticize them. And these these critics didn't have to be on, on the right. Um, mm -hmm. There certainly were enough, there's enough complexity within the French left, probably then and now, but certainly back then, that uh, they could be, you know, criticized on, on these grounds. And so that is the grounds that Parnay brought up. And, um, and you know, to what extent are Deleuze and Guattari responsible, as it were, for the interpretations that are laid on their work? And, you know, the 
the word on the street about what goes on in Deleuze's seminar and so forth. Certainly, it was a different kind of seminar. But I mean, Deleuze was in the French university system teaching the seminar, and there was a lot of crazy stuff going on elsewhere. I mean, Deleuze's story of his doctoral dissertation, <laughs> which is which was the late 60, 60 68 or 69, I think it was late mm-hmm. 68. I yeah. mean, you know, you got a committee that's basically holed up in an obscure room in the Sorbonne. And they're more interested in watching the door rather than listening to the guy there who's defending his dissertation. And they're worried that people are going to be bursting in and interrupting the thing. I mean, that already speaks to the kind of a political context. And it was four years before Anti-Oedipus came out. We're, not, we're not talking about a tame situation there. And so, you know, it's funny how I just think that this is sort of the context, of course, is Parnay trying to find things to get to those to respond. And I, and I say that because having listened to so many hours now of the um, seminars working mm-hmm. on the on the Deleuze seminar site, you know, I realize all the more so now how many things that Carnet asked him were not just wiffle ball questions. You know, mm-hmm. these were things that she already knew the answers to because he had spoken about them on, on many different occasions, but she was fitting the context of the ABC structure. So, you know, moving forward with that and allowing him to bring out some well-trodden ground mm-hmm. and then his answers, but then trying to figure out ways to get him to, if you will, come forth perhaps with so- something new, some new new thought that he might, might be having. And um, sometimes he was more willing during those interviews than others, you know, and, uh, but he could see her, he could see what she was up to every single time. We'll circle back, but because this is all fascinating, just starting in the middle, like Deleuze might <laughs> might enjoy and growing yeah. out from the. From yeah, the I was going to say we should just keep ro- mezzo. We should just keep yeah. rolling. I don't want to break up the energy. Let's just the, keep the, going. And B for Boire, the letter for drinking. Mm-hmm. Deleuze not only gets a little personal and mentions his own. I don't say struggles with alcoholism. I won't speak for him, but his own experience of it and defining, you know, the sort of getting to the penultimate second drink, to last, yeah. the second to yeah. last drink. And, but this is one of the places where he has that caution that we see perhaps in more abundance in a thousand plateaus, even if anti-Oedipus isn't saying, you know, drink that last drink, but he does mention this. It's like a death does, drive is what I kind of, well, he does, he does seem very concerned about young people, you know, Perhaps deterritorializing too quickly, as, as he mm-hmm. might say later. For sure. Uh, and in a thousand plateaus. And this, it does seem like he's very, at least for a moment there, kind of struck with this. He lets his care and concern as a teacher, I assume, you know, with, with many students of not only of all ages, but definitely, uh, you know, these youths that he's influencing. You do see him come forth and saying that he finds that intolerable, at least mm-hmm. for him to be able to, to take. So that's a personal side that maybe is better than than Deleuze having kind of an outburst or or just a dismissiveness. It, it does seem like there he he shows that um, it affected him very greatly these criticisms that perhaps he like Socrates was corrupting the youth. Yeah, no, it's it's he, 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 that's really a, a potent moment in the Diaz and Desire discussion when you know she brings that up and he you can see his voice getting extru- you know you can hear his voice getting ooh the volume goes down and when, when his voice goes down low 
man in the classroom, it was awful because people in the back of the room or even the middle of the room were sort of leaning <laughs> forward and trying to hear what he was saying. But he had those modulations in his voice through the mm-hmm. teaching. Fortunately, the mic was you know propped right up against him. So the recordings have, and, uh, but you know that that modulation, that low modulation is, uh-oh, okay, now you lean in and pick this up because, you know, he's uh, definitely focusing on on saying what he, he needs to say there. You know, not mm-hmm. that he didn't when he was shouting or you know, right. articulating more loudly, but there was just there was a real, real focus um, that he had to bring to bear on something that concerned him greatly. Just to anticipate a little bit before we circle back, you mentioned you have been working. You'll have to tell us how many years on the complete translations and transcriptions of of the seminars that he gave for Purdue, correct? Again, we'll have to link this in the notes, Cooper, for you and Dan Smith are, are sort of running this two separate groups of translators in this. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, sure. Well, the more recent project is Dan's project, but I got involved with the translation enterprise in terms of these seminars back around 98 or 99, when Richard Pinos was... Um, looking for people to, he was trying to do what Dan is doing to some extent, but he was trying to do it in a much more ambitious fashion by trying to get a group of international translators to take up the stuff that was already on his site in French and uh, translate into German, English, Spanish, and so forth. So I got involved in that a little bit. I did for him, I did five of the Leibniz 1980 mm-hmm. thing sessions. And I did a couple of the, just a few of the 87, 86, 87 Leibniz. But the problem with that project was there's a number of problems. But one at that point was that Pinas is a musician mm-hmm. and he was not devoting himself entirely to that. And not that he needed to necessarily, but when for me, it was frustrating to send him stuff and then to never see it get posted. So right. uh, I just got to a point where I'm not going to be slogging through this text and trying to translate right. it if, if he's lost interest in his project. So so I sort of left that aside. So that was like 98, 99. And then 20 years later, I'm reaching the point in fall of 2018 when it was my last semester of teaching. Mm-hmm. And um Dan contacts me, I won't say out of the blue, but I mean, Dan and I are in contact anyway, but he mm-hmm. just brought this up. He says, oh, by the way, you know, and he had mentioned from time to time that there was this project going, but he never really discussed it with me fully. And then he said, well, you know, I got this project on the list seminars. We're trying to get them translated and wonder if you'd like to come in on it. And I said, well, yeah, I've already got a whole bunch of them in the can. He goes, what? <laughs> so he didn't know about your translations. Well, he, he did and he didn't. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so I said, yeah, you know, I, I can send you seven of them right mm-hmm. off the bat, you know, two from one seminar, a complete seminar, and, uh, and then, you know, some of the Leibniz stuff. So that began in fall 2018. And Dan had been working on this for going on, you know, seven or eight years before yeah. that, because his starting point was trying to get documents that were available in order to get them to his students who didn't read French. And for him was specifically was Foucault seminars, but mm. he also, he did was he got a couple grants available that were available through Purdue in order to get people to do transcriptions as well as translations. And so he started working with, in conjunction with Paris 8, working on this. So in tandem with the Voice of Deleuze project that they have going simultaneously, he was working with them. And um, so his project really began um, to getting seed funding 
And once he had the seed funding, he was able to, to get the first NEH grant. And then the second one, one's tempted to say renewed, but they don't renew stuff. I mean, you got to reapply all over right. again. There's no automatic aspect of it. So the second one was granted just this past August. And oh, wow. So we've got a second one, and that's moving us forward now into pretty much heading towards completion, although we don't want to move too fast because we'd like to reapply. And so we could get even more because there's there's still stuff to be done, not just in terms of translation, but archivally making sure that the documentation is well backed up mm-hmm. onto the Purdue site as well as well archived. And um, that's sort of where we really got to sort of focus our, our energies over the next few years um, once we get yeah. the translations done. So, you know, it's a it's a big project. And if you've been to the site, you'll see, you know, mm-hmm. we broke broken down chronologically has gotten as much of the early stuff as we possibly can. And and then the official documents, that is the ones that are archived at the digitized at the Bibliothèque Nationale, those began in fall of 79, thanks to the heroic efforts of this Japanese student named Hidenobu Suzuki. And his doc, he sat there next to Deleuze from 1979 to 1987, basically, you know, glued to the guy. And um, he became, you know, a fixture of that seminar and, uh, and managed to get, I guess, around something like over 400 hours of the seminar. So that material we've been trying to get completed and completed in a number of different fashions, because Mm -hmm. um, one of the sad facts about what I discovered having been working on this for a while is that the material that I originally translated from Web Deleuze was not material that I had listened to. It was material that um, was transcribed, I guess, by Pinhas and made available on his site with the, I guess, the philosophy here was something's better than nothing. But when you went back the actual recordings, or when I went back to the actual recordings of those five 1980 Leibniz seminars, I realized that there were random things dropped out of them. And suddenly I, I realized that all the translating I had been doing had been based on defective transcriptions. Yes. So fortunately, I've gone back and managed to revise the transcriptions. And so those the transcriptions that are on our site now are faithful to those uh, recordings and mm-hmm. have um, gone and patched up the translations where they needed to be patched up so that they actually reflect what Deleuze said as opposed to someone's sort of patchwork. Paraphrasing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, this, he didn't do so much paraphrasing as just dropping, as it were, various mm-hmm. kinds of things. And, you know, I'm loath to be critical given that for at least a decade, if not more, Pinas had had put out there, made a strong effort to bring these texts to the world, free access, just as we're doing at Purdue, complete open access. um, And we're making it available now. I mean, we got everything we put up on the site is on in PDF form as well. So you can just don't even have to spend much time at the site, just download it and and you can enjoy it as you wish. And so far, we haven't really made little books out of them, but some people would like us to. um, Yes. In other words, to put 20 PDFs together in one PDF. And then you got, all you got to do is download that. And I'm thinking maybe, maybe you guys can make the effort to download the 20 PDFs and make your own little books, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then we won't have to dictate how they're bound. Darn it. That, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I, I, I actually, for Christmas, I got a, uh, my wife bought me a, a laser printer and I've been using that 
uh, pretty dutifully. So I guess the, the reason why I wanted to ask about the Purdue seminars, and you did mention in your correspondence with me this, the, the fact that you had to go back through and listen, and then hopefully not a horrifying feeling, but a maybe a sense of dread that, oh no, you know, there's that moment when, because I always find fixing a, a translation to be harder, in my opinion, than doing one from scratch. So I hope that the defects weren't that egregious and patching them up. Well, they were my translations, so they weren't, you know, I wasn't feeling like I was stepping on anybody else's uh, True. toes. So I just knew where I had, you know, I had been gulled into thinking that this was faithful. And, but then of course, my concept of faithfulness in that regard, in terms of, you know, fidelity to the, the transcripts, the recordings morphed over the last few years as well, as I became more and more involved in, in listening to these and realized how much we did have access to. And, uh, and that hadn't been ever been made available. And that's one of the, the joyful things about the Deleuze Seminars site mm-hmm. is that a lot of the stuff that we've got up there has never been available in right. French and French language oh. transcripts, and not to mention the English translation, because um, the recordings have been available, but mm. you've had to make the effort of sitting down and, and actually listening to them. And I don't know if it's because of the, the bandwidth issues or whatever, but I've had very little success in actually listening to the recordings recordings from France at the Bibliothèque Nationale. Mm. I've been able to listen to them on recordings that we've downloaded into since I can have them on my computer, then you know I'm just I'm just listening to what I have on my computer. And in some instances, I'll go over and I'll listen to it on, off of uh, a different one site or another. But getting them through the sort of the, I don't know what it was the wall of the Bibliotheque Nationale yeah. through the software was just has never been very very successful with that. But that's technical issues, and I've, I've gotten I've gotten beyond that. But it's the idea that we've been able to bring stuff out already into transcription into French transcription that wasn't there hasn't been there and that that's been uh, and we feel very confident that this is faithful to what actually said and to the point that i really make an effort to get as much as i can comprehend that's audible even from people who are and deleuze is always pretty much always uh audible except when he gets up and goes to the board moving away from the mic. I see, I see. And then you have other aspects where various kinds of ambient noises that block out certain words at certain times. There's just nothing you can that can be done about that. How many people coughing in his classrooms? I mean, when you're listening to it now in, in you know, the post-pandemic era, you're just thinking of yourself, oh my God, what, what were they breathing uh, mm-hmm. in the classrooms? Not to mention the smoking. The chain smoking. Um, the chain smoking in the classrooms. And Deleuze is constantly having to beseech the people attending, you know, could you just go outside and, and give me a break? Because here's a guy who suffers from emphysema, you know, and uh, and he has, had tuberculosis, and just, yeah, and had only one lung. It made me shake my head. Even watching the Abecedaire uh, videos with Parnay and Parnay's chain smoking, see these see these clouds of smoke drifting uh, yeah. in front of the camera, and you're going, "What's up with that?" I just think that maybe Deleuze. Well, actually, no. Let's not let the Liz off the hook here. <laughs> if you watch, there are a few of the seminars that have been recorded and yeah. are on video. If you watch the last one of, on in June of 1987, okay. you see Deleuze talking to the students there smoking a cigarette. Oh, okay. I was so, going to ask about if he still occasionally dabbled. Yeah. I mean, it's not like he just wants that secondhand smoke. He's perfectly capable of picking up a cigarette and uh, and having one. And you see him doing it on screen. So 
you know, it's not, uh, it's not like, you know, he can complain, but come on, Jill. Yeah. Cut everybody a break on this. Well, well if, if that's an 87, then, then the recordings of the Abbasadere start in the next year. Correct. So right, 88, 89, yeah. but he never, he never chose to smoke on camera for those interviews. I don't really think he was an active smoker. I think given the size of that apartment and where it was filmed, yeah. I think he needed to, Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's a sign of friendship to to not be bothered by Parnay. She gets the she gets the luxury of providing the secondhand smoke for him. Exactly. In 9899, you you do these translations and transcriptions, or you already had transcriptions. I had the transcriptions, yeah. And you take a break from that, but then very quickly after that, you started, I think you said, was it 2002? You start translating the Abbasadere. Yeah, it's pretty much done by then. Okay. So I had, I had the, no, I, when I got the Abbasadere, I got access to it. It came out in video uh, in France pretty quickly after it was transmitted. And mm-hmm. um, okay. so they had these uh, VCR cassettes available of them in French. And so I had them, you know, I had them uh, formatted over to US format so I could just watch them at home. Mm-hmm. But I realized that I didn't want to watch them like I was watching, you know, a Bruce Willis uh, film. <laughs> You know, I wanted to actually really be engaged. And the only way I felt comfortable about being engaged was actually transcribing. So that was the, that was sort of my way of not being lazy was to be very active with this and really Mm -hmm. try to understand word by word what was going on. So of course I watched through it initially just to get the lay of the land. Yeah. Yeah. And that's already eight hours of my life gone there. (laughs) But then, then I went back and I decided to start transcribing and yeah. um, so the transcription you know was just something that initially was for me and it was also to just it just felt like due diligence right and yeah. um so once i had those in hand you know i felt comfortable with the transcriptions or with little holes here and there then i realized that well there's no way i'm going to be able to translate this because i'm i'm just not going to get involved in all this permission mm-hmm. stuff um, yeah yeah so that's when i came up with the idea of doing a, a summary and so the summary that i put online shortly mm-hmm. thereafter i guess it was around 98 was a very 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 close as close yeah. as i could make it um, yeah. to the text but putting it all into third person and so forth and and giving as much of the detail as i possibly could with the occasional, you know, sliding into actual quotation here yeah. and there, but but by and large, keeping it into the transcript, the uh, um, summary style. And then it was there. Yeah, you know, so that was available for a few years. And at the same time, I had the French text available for anybody who wanted it, friends. And so I'd send that out to yeah. different people via good old snail mail. And um, there came a point around 90, I have to look back in my, you know, my correspondence, 99 or 2000, I got a email from the then editor of Semiotext, uh, Sylvia Lotranger. And I guess one of his graduate students told him about this, the summary that I had done. Well, something got lost in the translation to Lotranger because when he emailed me, he said, I'd like to publish your translation. Oh, no. Uh, and I had to email him straight back and say, oh, well, that would be nice if I had one, but I don't. And uh, I said, this is a summary and you know, I'm not going to you know deal with the permissions and so then he emails you back and, and we had to, to get that across from to him that this was actually not a translation yet took a couple emails but by the time he figured <laughs> that out he said oh well I got no problem getting the the permission for you yep. for yep. us 
but you know, would you be willing to do the translation? So we worked out an arrangement. And uh, as long as he goes ahead and gets the permission, then sure, I'll provide the translation. So that I went ahead and did that. Yeah. And then lo and behold, no, he's not going to be able to get the permission oh, anymore than no. anybody else. And the permission was not from the Deleuze family. It was from Claire Parnay because she oh. were the two people who were on the um, the uh, Abisader. And this, so this was not necessarily a Deleuze family thing. Mm. So she didn't give that permission. And so he, we were stuck. And that, I was fine with that because at that point, on the one hand, I never divulged or never let out any kind of electronic copy to anyone. So yeah. I respected my arrangement with the semiotext. On the other hand, I had a hard copy and um, was more than happy to use the good old snail mail to send out. And so a lot of people had the text of that and then hard that's, copy that's great. Uh, for quite a while. And then you know, a decade after that fiasco... I found myself doing an editorial job for Semiotext. Um, I guess it was doing the introduction or preface to the second Semiotext and MIT Press brought out new editions of the Guattari mm -hmm. um, lectures. And so I think I did the preface to the second volume of those. And so I was working with Semiotext and with the editors, but not with um, L'Otranger. And um, I got an email back mentioning the fact that that they gotten permission or Merrick Dan arrangement to do the subtitled DVD of right. the, of the Abisader. At which point I wrote, wrote back to the editor who I was in contact with. And I said, well, you guys know that you already have in your possession, the electronic version of this text email back. Really? We do. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I said, well, I said, I, I said, I don't know where you guys put it, but it was on a thumb drive. So, um, right. so at that point, I just sent him the copy. This was legit. I said, you guys do it what you want. It's yours anyway. And um, that was the, the subtitles are pretty much based on the translation I did, although there are certain spots which aren't, I, I won't claim my responsibility. Yes. But they're, but they're not very, there are very few of those. But nonetheless, they were trouble spots for me in doing the trans, the, doing the translation. So I can see why somebody else might have got them wrong. But uh, it's a problem with Deleuze and his enunciation and so forth. It's, I see, I see. It's confused. So it's not really clear what he's saying and how you're going to get that across, uh, particularly in subtitles. You're right. I mean, the, the, my only complaint about the YouTube version, which may or may not be faithfully reproducing the DVDs, which I only got to see when they first came out. So I can't compare, but there are moments where the subtitles up there for half a second and it's, it's a full sentence and you're like, well, wait a minute, you know, like that. So, so that, but that's a technical issue. That's not, um, yeah. That's not your your issue. I mean, th that story is is wonderful and interesting, and it gives a little flavor of how sometimes these things work. You mentioned in your book, if I read correctly, that when Deleuze says, "Oh, this is posthumous," there seems to be this indication that that the rights to the to the Abbasidere aren't necessarily meant to be for translation. Uh, yeah, this, yeah. Is, why exactly. Parnay, is this why Parnay felt she needed to be faithful to what right. Deleuze wanted? That there there wouldn't be an official, this wouldn't be translated in other languages, or would there that wouldn't be granted? Yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be just uh, this is it. What you see is what you is what you're going to get. And um, taking it any step further, sorry. And uh, so you know, my summary was already you know 
pushing a boundary, but (laughs) nobody came knocking at my door in the middle of the night and fair use. Yeah, Ferndale and say, hey, yield that summary. <laughs> yeah, um, cease and desist. Cease and desist with your summary. <laughs> so, yeah, it was that, that kind of rigor and respect for his wishes. And, uh, you know, to get him to do the, the video interview at all. Um, right. They had to have these kinds of um, promises, well, conditions in place. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that what I find fascinating is now that, you know, kind of time is looped back around, eternal return, you're you're back working on the Deleuze seminars. And what I find fascinating as a, as a translator is you seem to have all this experience with working with these transcriptions. Was that just something that happened by chance or was this something that, that you just felt well-suited for? I don't know if I felt in the least <laughs> well, well-suited for it, but you know, you know, necessity is a mother of invention. Yes. You know? Yes. Necessity. I mean, uh, yeah. You know, if I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make a, you know, a, an effort to watch these videos in a particular kind of way, then that's the way I'm going to do it. And then, yeah. you know, I, I have to profess, you know, I never cease to be amazed at my own myopia. I'll use that as the <laughs> most generous term I can give to myself, but it really is myopia with a capital M. I was over in France back in 1985, and I managed to interview both Deleuze and Guattari separately. And, uh, you know, I had those various aspects of that published at different points. But I swear, I knew that he had a course going on out at somewhere in Uh Paris. And I was there in 85. And this one guy I knew, Peter Canning, was telling me, hey, you know, I'm going over to the Liz's seminar. Um, Are you interested? I said, nah. And um, I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't understand, um, you know, that this was an actual class being held on a regular basis. In other words, I didn't realize that he was an actual weekly professor who just met his seminar and had been doing so for a decade or two. Mm -hmm. And I had no framework for understanding that. Why, again, I'll say myopia, I had no grasp of that. And um, I had an opportunity to go listen to one of them. Then I think about, well, what would that experience have been like? Because Mm -hmm. I see what the classrooms are like. Well, the, the small seminar room packed to the rafters with all these students who in some cases are stuck at the back and can barely hear the guy. But even if you could hear the guy, even if I could get a front row seat on this, knowing that I sort of be dropped in to a seminar in March of 1985, um, okay, well, he was working on the third year of the cinema seminars and it would be so, it would have been so out of context for me to sort of what is this guy saying? I mean, and I'd have to look back at my actual dates, uh, and I haven't, you know, done that because to pinpoint this, which which seminar this weird fantasy that I'm I'm <laughs> you know alternate reality You're haunted that by I'm it. Giving, giving to you that haunts me in in the dark. Oh, yeah. You know, I just haven't really gone the full mile to see how strange it might have been. But yeah. uh, so you know, I just, you have to be when you say you know you ask me about the transcription when you you have to be ready for certain things at certain points. And so, you know, I was probably fortunate that I didn't have any kind of conceptual framework to actually go out to sit in that classroom because Mm -hmm. it would have been a waste for me anyway. And, you know, coming to the transcriptions, although I did do the transcription for the Abbe Seder in order to get to the translation, 
that was never a project. The idea, oh, I'm going to ultimately do a translation. Yeah. No, I mean, it was just one step going to the next. But um, the transcriptions for the Lilith Seminars project that we're working on at Purdue, that, you know, again, when I went in there, I was still working within sort of the myopic framework of what Pinas had produced and didn't yes. even know about what was going at La Voix de Deleuze and how expensive that was. And then subsequently I realized, oh, there are all these seminars that have been transcribed. But then as I began to move forward, one of the problems, and this still haunts both the Web Deleuze site as well as the Voix de Deleuze site, Whoever posted in certain instances some of the transcriptions that were made by the students, they didn't do a, some cases didn't do a very good job because sometimes there are these transpositions. So we get the second part first. Sometimes there's one instance, I believe it's in Cinema One somewhere, could be Cinema Two. I'd have to look back. Mm-hmm. But you've got not only you have a transposition of parts, but you have part of session three that's in session two. And then, so you suddenly, when you're beginning to to work on the transcription, as I was beginning to do, I'd find myself in these weird situations (laughs) where what I was listening to had very little bearing to what was actually in front of me in terms of what had been transcribed. And fortunately, I had gotten familiar enough with the material that I was able to do a lot of, you know, it's amazing what you can do with you know little Google searching here or text searching there. Yes, and realizing quickly that there were these transpositions of, and so you know in the case of Pinas's site, he's got this phantom Leibniz lecture in November of 1986 that is impossible as a lecture a because that's not on a Tuesday. Um, the date that he's assigned to it is not a Tuesday. Gotcha. And the reason he had assigned that date to it is because he transposed the year wrong. It's not like November 25th of <laughs> 1986. It's November 25th of 1985 mm-hmm. because what he's put up as a lecture in the Leibniz session is actually a segment of the previous year's Foucault. Oh, and right. that's there under Foucault. It's not like Foucault suddenly has this little hole that was shifted <laughs> a year. It's complete. It's just that somehow this fragment got stuck in, plugged in by mistake into the into the slot in 1986. So there's, there's a lot of these widows and orphans, as it were, <laughs> that pop up in the transcriptions that are posted. And uh, that's sort of taken a lot of extra effort. Of time. It's taken effort, but yeah. it's just you have to be a sleuth and very yeah. aware some of the limitations are and uh, as as you know you have a massive effort i mean you get a hats off to the people at paris 8 for their incredible effort to bring all this stuff out in a timely fashion i had noted in dan's dan wrote on the the page called about deleuze about the site mm-hmm. about the deleuze <clears throat> seminars he said it took them 14 years to accomplish their task starting in i think 2002 all the way to 2016 to yeah. fill in that site so year in year out they had students working on different aspects and getting <coughs> these transcriptions coming out and hence if you got that many people working that long period, there's going to be all kinds of variability, if you will, both in terms of the quality of the transcripts and as well as sort of the technical know-how of people who are plugging in the completed work into the site. And it's unfortunate, but stuff happens and you recognize it. I try to make it clear to anybody who's using our site that 
this is the case at these other sites, not because I want to you know, point fingers, but just so they know that if there's a, a variant variation yeah. between what yeah. we're presenting and what they're presenting, it's because this is the case. And, yes. um, you know, that's all I'm not trying to, you know, lord it over anybody. It's just, we're really making an effort to get all this stuff right. Yeah. Due diligence. And so you were, this is circling back to sort of your own trajectory into the orbit of Deleuze, into your own interest in philosophy. You were at the Sorbonne in, or you were in Paris in, in March 85. Was this part of your doctoral work or your postdoctoral oh, no. work? No, no. I got my doctorate in uh, 81. Okay. And um, no, I was just a ambitious young professor, assistant <laughs> professor, trying to, fortunately, I was, again, I was myopic. So consequently, I thought I could just check these guys out and sit around and talk to them. And turned out you could. That was a surprise. So good on me that I actually actually went there. But mm-hmm. uh, on the other hand, you know, I didn't really know enough to, to really make a real really benefit from from the experiences. But no, I was uh, did my dissertation back in finished my dissertation in eighty one at, at Champ in Illinois in Champaign mm-hmm. Urbana. So um, in my interest in Deleuze, well, that came from and in, in, in some ways the, the whole interest in translation came mm-hmm. sort of up at the same time because. Um, I was working with colleagues in French. Of course, I did my dissertation in French literature mm-hmm. at the University of Illinois, but uh, I was also working with people who were not in French studies, but they were interested in French theory. So in a number of, we had some uh, seminars, a uh, reading group that we were doing in Champaign-Urbana. And um, in order to get some of the texts, for example, we started off with a seminar, a reading group on Lacan. Then we moved on to Anti-Oedipus from that, and then we moved on to Foucault. And uh, in each of the cases, but, but particularly in Lacan, there were certain texts that weren't available in English. And uh, so I did start a translation, did one translation of something from Écrit, so that our group would have access to it. And and then kept doing that um, yeah. with different things from Deleuze or Guattari, since there was not that much available in right. 77, 78, when we were 79, when we were doing our reading groups. And so, you know, it was just sort of getting, that was sort of where I got into doing, providing translations as just something to supplement readings that were, we already had in progress. But it was during those years uh, in Champaign-Urbana where I had some friends who were particularly interested in reading these different critical texts. And uh, so the thing about the Luz and Guattari was there was uh, the Anti-Oedipus was so perplexing and yes. <laughs> um, both in terms of its content as well as, you know, the, if I could have understood better the context, like I mentioned a bit yes. earlier, that would have been very, very helpful to be able to situate some of the things that they were saying. But uh, still, you know, I stuck with it after we finished our one semester um, on reading Antioedipus and uh, just tried to stay with it and try to, you know, tease out some of the problems that we had had, I had had with that. And, uh, you know, just that's sort of sheer stubbornness kept, yeah. kept at it, you know, I was it wasn't mention... anything particularly insightful on my part. It was <laughs> out of, out of just sheer willfulness that I just, yeah. you know, this is, this is really annoying that I, I can get Foucault to some extent. I can get to the extent anyone can get Lacan, I can get <laughs> Lacan, but why are these guys so perplexing? And that, yeah. that was, I, I want to keep going back to them. Taylor and I have been working our way through Anti-Oedipus as uh, I kind of tongue-in-cheek have been titling them seminars. Just curious if you have any <laughs> if you have any advice, especially for me. I, this is my first time through the entire book, 
And so just curious if you have any advice, especially for chapter three, I think we've covered the initial sections and it gets progressively more (laughs) challenging as you move through that chapter. So I don't know if you have any, uh, yeah, we're almost on perhaps words of, yeah, Yeah. perhaps words of encouragement at the, at the very least. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of meta commentary out there as well. So you can always, you know, Gene Holland has a great book on Mm -hmm. reading Antiedipus. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, looking to see how other people, you know, have, have now that we're in, we're a well, we're, we're 50 years beyond the publication. <laughs> now is about the time you're allowed to look at other stuff, people's stuff. <laughs> there's a 50 year statute of limitations. Yeah. On that, but I think, I think we've reached it. My advice to anybody who's starting from scratch is just go to the fourth chapter and read that first. Mm, interesting. That way, you know, if the introduction to schizoanalysis, then circle back around. I think the opening chapter is meant to put people off deliberately. Yeah. So, you know, don't fall into their trap. Go to the introduction to schizoanalysis. You may have missed a lot of the stuff that they've already presented in one, two, and three that might make reading chapter four easier. But on the other hand, nobody's going to argue that reading chapters one, two, or three is easy. Uh, yeah. and, and then and then chapter four is the piece of cake. So no, I mean, get. but in any case, I think that they're trying to make their case in chapter four. But mm-hmm. the thing about chapters two and three, from my perspective, is that they're just they're just separate plateaus of mm-hmm. the thousand plateaus with one and four bookending them. Interesting. Again, chapter one being this annoying attempt to put yeah. you off as a reader, yeah. throw the book across the room and never pick it up again, except to you know perhaps throw it out. <laughs> so there's got that first chapter that's going to get your goat. Chapter four is where perhaps you're trying to lay something out that's a bit more systematic with you know cautionary asterisks around the word systematic. But uh, two and three, I just see as plateaus that you could line up with the other plateaus in the next volume. And perhaps earlier plateaus, if you will, maybe ones that they would have fleshed out a little differently if they were going to be publishing them in a thousand plateaus along right. with the other ones. But still, they're trying to give you that the psychoanalytical perspective and then the non-Marxist Marxist perspective. And they'll go on to develop aspects of that third plateau or third chapter in a thousand plateaus and mm-hmm. in a number of different ways. So yeah, but other than that, I mean, I haven't looked at Anti-Oedipus in a while, so I'd have to, <laughs> you know, I, I'd have to go dive back in to give you more, if it give you any more insights, uh, which I, you know, I'm loath to do. I mean, I got to confess that you you're commenting about my my own book on Deleuze's ABCs, the Labistadere, and I had to pull it off the shelf and go back through it to remind myself of some of the stuff. <laughs> and as I was reading through some of the some of the chapters, particularly the chapter on Deleuze's laugh, I realized, oh my God, I got all these cool quotes in here. Where did I get these? I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I had completely forgotten that I'd put all these quotes uh, and mm-hmm. got these cool things in there. And I'm going, I mean, I'm not saying what I wrote is cool. I'm just saying that I got these great quotes in there. And uh, so I'm probably going to have to go back and just look at the quotes just because I, in juxtaposing them to the stuff that I'm hearing in the seminars. He has a number of different riffs that he goes through, examples that he likes to pull out and so forth. And those riffs are, they come up in the uh, the Abecedaire with the interview with Parnay, but they're already been been well trodden and brought out at different points during the course of his, his seminars. And uh, so you know, you can pick out, you know, certain things that he says that, you know, oh yeah, back in, you know, I, I could annotate, if you will, uh, um, yeah. do a whole new set of footnotes to the Abecedaire 
translation that I have, but with references to the different seminars in which he brings these things up in different contexts, in different ways, but will feed into, if you will, what he brings up with Parnay. Do you see that as a possible future book anything project? Is, anything is possible. No time soon, but uh, no time soon. No time soon. No, I mean, I'm nobody's going to pay me to do that. Yeah. Uh, whereas, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm getting, I can actually, you know, get a little bit of grant money for the translations. So, and in retirement, everything is good in that yeah. regard. So, um, trying to at some point we'll be able to back and go on vacations again. Mm-hmm. So then I'll have a nice little vacation stash. That actually makes a lot of sense. And and I like your advice about anti-Oedipus and I hadn't thought about chapters two and three as plateaus. You can definitely see how the second chapter on psychoanalysis dovetails with the second plateau on one or several wolves. You can see how the third chapter, the ethnographic chapter corresponds with the plateaus on the war machine and on the apparatus of capture. All of that actually brings a lot of clarity. And I do think that you're right somewhat about chapter one as putting off the casual reader. And on the other hand, though, I mean, speaking of the last chapter of, of your book on the Abbasidere and, and on the folds of friendship, there is a sense in which chapter one, too, has has a lot of moments where you can kind of tell, even if it may be frustrating as a reader, but you can kind of tell with a little bit more perspective, looking back, that Deleuze and Guattari are having some fun. Oh, they, yeah. The stuff about Schreber and the solar anus, which comes up very oh, quickly. The opening sure. lines. Uh, oh, the opening uh, paragraph. Yeah, the opening paragraph. Yeah. It's one of the best paragraphs ever written. we always juxtapose that i think cooper and i have juxtaposed the first paragraph with the first the first opening paragraph of leotard's libidinal economy which Mm -hmm. is also this very playful you know spread out the body and in any case you know there's there is this notion that at some points and you see this too in a thousand plateaus but at some points you see the liz and guattari are having a little fun and they are Mm -hmm making some, they are fulfilling that Nietzschean requirement, you know, when Zarathustra, speak of one of your quotes about uh, how, you know, important men, high men, they have to learn how to laugh. And there is a sense in which that too, perhaps they are, if they are at one hand warding off the casual reader, on the other hand, they do also seem to want to inject some levity and some sense of it's okay to laugh at something as serious as psychoanalysis and, you know, to talk about Michaud's schizophrenic tables and, and these other, um, one of my favorite in a thousand plateaus and Masubi translates, I haven't looked at the French, but Masubi translates it as a sentence. It's just two words, a Norwegian omelet. I don't know if you remember that. I think they're talking about Helmslev. So these moments of laughter and levity, I think are a good counterpoint to especially in A Thousand Plateaus, some of the more cautious warnings and advisements. So, you know, a little herb and water is all you need and and things like this. Do you feel that? But I think that they're having a lot of fun with that, how to make yourself a body without organs. I think mm-hmm. they're having a lot of fun in that chapter as well. I mean, I think that that's, uh, I find that a delightful text, despite the fact that, you know, it, it's taken so much heat in terms of, you know, oh my goodness, they're, they're not anti-eatable anymore. I haven't well, heard that. You might have to tell us about that if you, you want. But... You, what do you mean you haven't heard that? You haven't I, heard that? I, tell, no. t- just tell me a little bit. Maybe, maybe, maybe oh, I'll come yeah, to... Oh, God. Okay. Well, uh, I didn't um, mean to derail your train of thought. No, I just... no. Well, there's this whole train of uh, discussion that took place in the 80s and into, yeah, into the early 90s 
I encountered it in the UK, went to a conference that had been organized by a group of people at Warwick. And um, uh. one of the things I quickly discovered was that the a bunch of the Warwickers found a thousand plateaus was, was simply a, a betrayal of the true Deleuze Guattarian sense of uh, deterritorialization. Absolute deterritorialization. Absolute so this is Nick, Nick Land yeah. group? Yeah. So, you know, quickly discovered that, uh, you know, there was a, a political correctness connected to modes of reading of Deleuze. And um, I see, yes. You know, and that's where I got, you know, got that zap. And so, um, <laughs> so that's, you know, where, where he says you, you have to, you know, the word, the, the dirty word that they use was caution. And, yes. um, and so, you know, you're going to deterritorialize, you have to deterritorialize cautiously, you know, not with a sledgehammer with a fine file. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, you know, we want our sledgehammer. Yes. You know, um, so that, that was, that's sort of the short version uh, no, of that, that, you know, I had heard this. Yeah. I, I had heard this specifically from Nick land. So, or and at least who, a apocryphal sort of quasi who, who criticism at ATP, right? Who better to learn about deterritorializing <laughs> too quickly? Oh, right? indeed. Indeed. And Nick Land. Anyway, okay, I, I understand the context better uh, now with that. And uh, and yes, I, I guess I was just trying to perhaps bring out that, you know, sometimes it's, um, it is thought of that Deleuze, at least perhaps more in his solo works, because you mentioned 69, it was kind of almost fated, destined for Deleuze and Guattari to, to assemble their forces together. There is this, sometimes this notion in is a solo work that you don't have the same levity that he perhaps was able to achieve with Guattari. But it's it's all contextual because I think of Logic of Sense, even if he may have ended with a kind of impasse in so far as he took Lacanian psychoanalysis as far as it could possibly go within the framework of the structuralist and the serialist elaboration you do see in logic of sense moments of laughter and levity. Yeah. Oh, one yeah. Of the, one of the, the the places, and you know this better than I do, obviously, since you co-translated the work, just for the listeners out there. One of the funniest points is in the 13th series on, what is it, the schizophrenic and the little girl, where he says he wouldn't, he's been talking up Lewis Carroll for 12 series and using him as the sort of master elaborator of the logic of sense. And then he brings in Artaud and totally demolishes it and said he wouldn't trade a page of Artaud for the whole of Carol. So, and that always, that, that line always made me laugh. Maybe he wasn't meant to be light and hilarious, but you know, just as an yeah. example. Oh yeah. You know, he's, 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 there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff and, and he's really enjoying himself. But, you know, imagine yourself after, so Deleuze is born in 1925. Mm -hmm. So by 68, he's what, 43 years old? Mm -hmm. And he's been around the block a few times. Uh, he's uh, established himself as a very, very respected teacher as well as philosopher. Mm -hmm. He's uh, got quite a few books, you know, the Nietzsche book, the Proust book, Kant book. Um, Hume. And then he comes hit the Hume book. Mm -hmm. So he comes out in 67 with what's the called the minor dissertation, which is yes. his his first book on Spinoza. Then he does the major dissertation, which is difference in repetition. So what would you want to do naturally after all those years of striving to get your French PhD, but come out with a happy-go-lucky logic of sense type book? Yeah. And um, so yeah. I just 
get the, I, I always approach that book as, okay, he's got his philosophy mm-hmm. and his perspective on philosophy in place, thanks to you know, the works he's been doing, but particularly, as let's just say, difference in repetition, the, what his cornerstone and his place at the table. But how does he take that a step further? How does he sort of have a flip side to that, which is just as rigorous and also seizing on the moment, um, mm-hmm. the structuralist moment? And so coming up with a way of turning structuralism on its ear and figuring out how he might be able to adapt himself to that moment. And so, I mean, I'm and I'm really trying not to be reductionist with about logic of sense because there's so much more going on in there. But in any case, I really think that there are some great moments of levity, porcelain and volcano. What is the event and porcelain and volcano are the two series that sort of keep coming back to me as the key ones. And but the final chapter, the final one as well, is just it's a delirious ending. Yes. Um, if you want to compare compare opening chapters to closing chapters, I mean, the closing chapter of Logic of Sense is nuts, just plain nuts. That this final few paragraphs wrote a paper on just trying to figure out what that paragraph meant in <laughs> relation in That's relationship wonderful. to what happens, what leads up to that. How could he write mm-hmm. this? What does this mean in the context yeah. of this book? And I mean, that was a real fun experience trying to to work that out and uh, see how you know he was building in those he basically brought everything together sort of condensed into those final paragraphs but it was all this rush of stuff coming together into those final paragraphs and and uh, you start wow closing this book and then there's five more annexes yes he's going wait the book's not quite over yet (laughs) exactly yeah exactly the you know there's and there's still so much in in those appendices those annexes that are uh that are extremely helpful you know first uh, appendix is is so important to differentiate his idea of simulacra, which he never relinquishes on, even in the Abbasidere when he's talking about Plato and the claimants, to help understand the, the differences between how, what Deleuze understands simulacra to be and, and what someone like Baudrillard takes it to be, which even if they have convergences, they are that is, is a, an essential point to distinguish them. So yeah, I mean, I think that that you pointed out very astutely that you wrote the uh, the book on the Abbasidere as a way of writing in series or writing in plateaus. You you trying to discuss the style that you were aiming to achieve, and in a certain sense, logic of sense and a thousand plateaus are the the two stylistically unique in all of this corpus. Yeah, and I mean, I mean stylistically, you mean I mean I have a whole different appreciation for his style, having worked on particularly worked on the, the Leibniz mm-hmm. seminar, Dan and I have, you know, pretty much come to an, you know, agree that as Deleuze got towards the final years of his, his writing career, he mentions this in the Abbasidere when he's talking about style and he's talking about these stylists that he admires so much. And um, he compares, for example, Kerouac and, and other people to these Japanese line paintings and these sort of these fine, refined movement of line so that so much is expressed and so little. And that's where he saw Kerouac coming to at the end of his career and so forth. And the thing that seems to happen in Deleuze's career is he becomes more and more moving in that direction. That is particularly if you look at the, the Leibniz and the Fold book in relationship to the 20 sessions of the final Leibniz seminar. I mean, my God, 
the expression that we're using is, is these books are like that, that and the Foucault book are kind of like freeze dried Deleuze mm. in the sense that he's got these very expansive 26 lectures on the Foucault seminar, 20 for the Leibniz, and, you know, tighten up. Whereas he'll go on for a half a, you know, maybe an hour to an hour and a half in one of the seminars on Mallarmé. Well, you can pinpoint the maybe three references to Mallarmé explicit and sort of these allusions to Mallarmé, if you can, mm -hmm. if you're familiar enough with Mallarmé in the uh, Leibniz book. And so it's like all this kind of stuff that's expanded upon is tightened up and brought down into this very, very tight um, little book. And yeah. uh, I mean, 179 pages in the French and like 130 in translation, but mm -hmm. Foucault is even more incredible because the Foucault book is no more, the new stuff is no more than 100 pages, whereas he did 26 sessions on, on Foucault, and he went through the three phases in great detail, the three phases of uh, Foucault's career, and um, very deliberately working from one to the next. And uh, well, they appear, but squeeze down so tight in that book. And so it's just, I believe his style tended to change as he moved forward. I mean, he's got maybe eight or nine sessions on painting and, you know, he's got a kind of a tiny preface, if you will, tight little preface to the Bacon book. And, and in fact, it was a preface. The cool part is the, the, the plates, but you know, his thing, he, I'm sure he just saw himself as sort of Here's a few here are a few random thoughts, but he did have a seminar that that was based on. So you know he shifted in his I won't say uh, his post I'll say post seventies style towards you know something greatly great, uh, greatly refined um, mm -hmm. as he was as developing those uh, those texts of the eighties. Getting to talk to you about just about translation and things like this, it reminded me what you were saying about how how you why you started to transcribe the Abbasidaire. When I started translating, I started translating um, these little minor thinkers in Eliza's work. It was, it was people like Rouillet and, um, and Simon Dong, right? These thinkers, I, I, obviously Simon Dong is to me not a minor thinker now, but at the time there wasn't much material available. You know, Rouillet had some, some of his work was translated like in the fifties with like little essays. And so I, it started off as kind of a selfish thing where it's like, I, I want to understand this. I had a background in, in Latin and Spanish, but French was a, was something that I had never really gotten to experience. So that at least allowed me to have a basic reading knowledge, but I wanted to have the, the English to make sure that I was understanding it. And then it became this thing where it's like, well, why not, why not share that with, why not use the blog? blog at the time blogs were the biggest rage you know in uh, mm -hmm. at the end of the was like 2006 2007 mm -hmm. and uh and that became a means to share these rudimentary like a preface here or or an intro there and, and i couldn't have known beforehand that that would that would take on a life of its own and become become a passion so it's just getting to talk to you about these things and how you kind of started in a similar way where you're providing these translations of Lacan and uh, Deleuze and Guattari to share with, with your group. It seems very similar where it is this, this kind of need to form a, like a community around, around 
thinking that may not be accessible otherwise. Mm -hmm. I know Dan and I see it as a legacy, Mm -hmm. um, this project, you know, it's more of a legacy project to, to be able to get this stuff out there. You know, I I really think that uh, some point people are going to, we get the translations done. I think people beginning, some people begin to sort of seize on these uh, transcripts and translations and begin to do a rereading of, you know, say the cinema books in relationship mm-hmm. to the seminars and uh, the Spinoza in relationship to the Spinoza seminars or the painting book in relationship mm-hmm. to the painting or the Leibniz to, you know, relationship to the Leibniz seminars. I mean, there's just, and Foucault, I mean, there's just, uh, and possibly some of the earlier stuff. I mean, that's one of the problems that we we have a, a data, we call it a data rescue project, but that seems to so far not be seeing much success, which is mm. to try to get anybody, get the word out to anybody who happened to have recorded any of Deleuze's seminars other than Hidenobu Suzuki to, you know, get in contact and allow us to have access to these uh, recordings. And we haven't found anybody yet. And it has yeah. to do with a, sort of an age issue, I guess. Yeah. You know, people who are in their 20s in the 70s and 80s um, are a different point in their life now. And who, how many how many moves have they made? And uh, so if they had recordings, had cassettes, who knows where they ended up? So right. we haven't been able to do anything with that. But on the other hand, there are some, you know, we put the, got the translations, not the transcriptions yet. That's something we've got to do. But we got the translations of the 1970, I think 75, 76 RAI transmissions of the Liza seminars. And um, so we have a, some of the 75, 76 stuff. And, uh, and so there's some of the stuff from the seventies that we have in there, but none of it has the, if you will, the, I guess the cred that, you know, the Suzuki recordings have given his placement close mm-hmm. to, if not right next to Deleuze and, uh, you know, and Deleuze is sort of, at least implicit, if not you know, explicit uh, sort of endorsement of this guy's efforts. You know, he does acknowledge the guy again and again. Um, okay. Okay. You know, at different points, you know, they're, they're quick and they're subtle, but uh, nonetheless, you know, he'll, he'll make reference to the Japanese and you can just hear him, you know, feel him turning to this guy who's sitting on his right um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, sort of for validation of, of whatever comment he's trying to make. And sometimes he's still is saying complete hogwash and Suzuki's got to very gently say, well, it's really not that. <laughs> and the Liz goes, Oh really? It's not that. Oh, well, maybe it, it could be that. Couldn't it? <laughs> no, he goes, no. So there's, there's some funny moments, but uh, well, it, it, it's, it's interesting that without his efforts, without Suzuki's efforts, we may not have these seminars at all. Is that part of the implication? Well, yeah. I mean, there was no systematic uh, project while Deleuze was doing this. I mean, Suzuki was the, I mean, he wasn't the only one recording. I mean, if you see, if you see the videos, you got this bank of audio cassettes recorders sitting in front of them. And if you're listening to the audio of any of these, you'll hear these clicks clicks you know and right and if you guys are ever familiar with this technology it's, but it's a tape deck, i right? sure was and so depends on how long of cassette you're using if you're getting a 60 minute cassette you're going to have to flip it at minute 30 mm-hmm. you get a 40 you know you get a 90 minute cassette you got to flip it at 45 don't go to the, the 100 you know the two hour one because those ones always break 
Oh. So, you know, yeah. I mean, it was, those are very, very flimsy hardware. So, uh, so the 45 minute cassette you learned was, excuse me, the 45 each side, 90 minute cassette was sort of the way to go, but you got to flip them over. And so, you know, you hear these things popping, popping, popping. So there's all these different cassette recorders that are there. Where the hell are they? That's yes, Dan, I see. Dan and I, I keep keep asking ourselves, where the hell are those cassettes? Because it wasn't just Suzuki. Suzuki was just systematic enough to have kept track of what he did with them and then to have donated them to France. Gotcha. <laughs> and uh, gotcha. Wow. You know, he should get a you know one of those French distinctions <laughs> that, that they seem to throw out to only to college professors. But uh, uh. he should get one of those. You know, and because uh, you know he really he really dedicated himself to the the patrimony of France. I see now why the the data retrieval could still slim, but still have some hope in the future of producing some material that right. that you guys don't have at the moment. Well, Dan's going to go to Dan, at least the last I heard, he's, he's planning on going to France next year on sabbatical. So, and so he's hoping to be able to ask around. That's one of his main purposes besides the fact his wife is French and they're going to take the little girl over. And, you know, so she'll be able to spend time with her, with her family there, but nonetheless, he's, his own projects and he knows a lot of people in France, but uh, that would be one of the, the, the real goals to try to ask around and talk to some of the people who may not have been at the seminars, but who may still know people who are at the seminars and, um, you know, sort of do some of that uh, scholarship, you know, scholarly sleuthing that uh, really could yield something that, uh, I mean, I would just absolutely cream at the idea of mm -hmm. uh, getting hold of some of those cassettes and, I'd run down to Wayne. I'd go back to my all down to my school where I'd retired from. I'd go down to Wayne, go down to the language lab and see if the techs could help me, you know, enhance yes. the sound somehow so we yeah. could get the best quality so I could get the a little bit easier time doing mm -hmm. the, doing the transcriptions. I mean, uh, I can slow things down, but uh, you know, and get I mean, when I'm listening to Deleuze, I can slow things down. But uh, get in turn turn up the volume and slow things down. But still, I can't do anything about the noise, any kind of ambient yes. noise. And and there are probably ways of filtering that out. I just oh, yeah. don't have access to that kind of uh, uh, material. I mean, I suppose I could, you know. But that just, you know, I mean, we're just trying to get the translations done. I mean, yes. there are next levels of refinement that uh, that are down the road. I mean, that's one of the things I was doing over Christmas between the middle of December and up until just about two weeks ago. I was working on the Foucault transcripts because the transcripts themselves are very well done. And so there's very little cleanup to be done on those in terms of the actual content. But the format, the um, transcripts are in some cases, is just abominable because yes. they just have these long, long, long paragraphs without yeah. any kind of paragraph break. And so you look at them and I think the translation sort of took on the same kind of look as the transcripts. And so I was going through, I did 13 of them over the Christmas break, you know, for about the 15th of December to about two weeks ago. And, and then said, okay, I'm, this is good. I've got them half, half of Foucault's done. I'll come back to this. But it was just really going through them, reading them and finding where the logical breaks are so that yes. the actual reading process itself would be a lot more accessible. So you're not dealing with these looks like these Proustian paragraphs. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just something that's a little bit more welcoming.
the three page of all uh, Faulkner sentence, right? That's uh, just to help with the, the the readability and the legibility. I think that that's that's important, and sometimes can be can be a subtle thing. But you're right, you know, dealing with a wall of text is not anyone's uh, in anyone's best interest. The breaks articulate shifts into Liz's thinking while he's sitting mm-hmm. in front of the classroom. So it's not like he thinks in paragraphs, right? But nonetheless, there are there are ways of making the flow of his thought a little bit more accessible because he does take breaks. You know, he uh, there are different ways to manifest themselves, but they you know I've gotten to a point where I'm pretty good at picking up some of the subtle cues mm-hmm. um, that you okay you know he says bon or voila or. <laughs> You know, uh, and, and there are just these little locutions that he'll use that yeah. you realize, okay, that's a, that's a shift there. That's a, that's a legitimate shift. That's um, a period on the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a paragraph break, you know, full stop, we'll come to the next paragraph, you know. I love that. And, you know, it's it's interesting that, that we're, we're talking about Deleuze's teaching, his presence in the seminar. And as you mentioned, there are videos out there the listeners, I, I, I urge you to, to look at those as well as the Abyssinian, just to get a, a real sense of the feeling of how packed with not only with bodies, but with, with a kind of ambient energy that you can see in the, in the videos that we have. Maybe, maybe there are some, some other videos out there to be retrieved. You know, we, we can only hope. I bring that up because you yourself have edited a collection on pedagogy and you write about it in uh, in your second chapter of the Folds of Friendship book on the Abbasidaire about pedagogy. You link it to to the very kind of subtle and intricate notion of friendship that you develop throughout Deleuze, Derrida, Foucault, Blanchot. Do you want to tell us a little bit about you know your own relation to teaching and pedagogy and and friendship? Because you do seem you do have this kind of impassioned call for the central role of teaching. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, your relation to, to teaching and how, you know, your philosophy, your teaching philosophy, if you will? Well, you know, I, I'd rather not. Okay. <laughs> okay. If I must, I can. I mean, it's just that. You can I keep it impersonal. For all the energy that I poured into putting that um, MLA volume together, I just looked, I mean, I had to pull it off a shelf like I did with my Abbey Say Air book to see what that was about. Because, you know, and it came out, you know, it's almost almost 20 years since I was putting that together. And um, what happened was that I was going to these different conferences, 19th century French studies and 20th century French studies conferences. And one of the things that hadn't been developed at these conferences very much was actual discussions about teaching what we were talking about in such scholarly and theoretical terms. Right. So I put together a whole bunch of different roundtables at these different, these two conferences. And um, gradually over the course of about five or six academic years, we had a body of these developed and a bunch of people who, who, you know, sort of became usual suspects as it were friends who, you know, shared this interest. And so that's where the the MLA volume came up and, you know, and these kinds of things are so, so crazy because I happened to be at a modern language, modern language association convention one year, I want to say around 2000 or 2001, but uh, I think it was maybe or 99. I don't know. It was right around the cusp of the century because, but I was at a chatting with someone who, who was one of the editors of um, the MLA press and, uh, and I just was telling her about this, you know, 
And um, she said, well, that sounds really fascinating. Would you be willing Mm -hmm. to just write up what we've been talking about here? And one thing led to another, and that volume eventually came about. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I'm giving you a mechanical answer uh, That's fine. In, in that regard. But, um, you know, I found my relationship to, uh, I actually reread the sort of the beginning of what I wrote in that, in that volume as well, and kind of liked what I said. It was, the, the, but the idea that it was talking about how to use theory in the classroom. Yes. That was it. And my approach was less is more. Because I found that it didn't really, it was sort of how I felt about teaching intro French, just teaching mm-hmm. basic French was, and it's going to sound, and this is blasphemous, truly <laughs> for, for anybody who teaches French, but I also felt that the French language with the French language in an intro, that is a first semester French class, less is more mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that it's so many people I had encountered over the years when I told them I'm a French professor, oh, I hated French. You know, oh, I mean, no. Yeah, I, I see. I see. If I had a dollar for that, man, oh, boy, would I be a fat cat? Just, uh, <laughs> I mean, amazing. And I, and I always, it always perplexed me, you know, that that, that was the case. And, um, and I just had to assume that it had to come from a certain overzealousness um, yeah. to, to get that French stuff, really get that French stuff uh, into the students' souls and and uh, I mean, I just try to make it uh, accessible, as accessible as I possibly could, which didn't prevent me from using English to communicate certain things that had to be communicated and get done efficiently and quickly. So then we could get back to the French, as it were, which is not sanctioned by any organization that I know of these days. But nonetheless, it's just how I felt about teaching the basic French. And it's how I felt about teaching the, the more advanced stuff that, that one could really go off the tracks by overloading the students with the theory stuff. And um, whereas I really wanted to get them to be able to read what they were actually, what the authors had actually written. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that in itself is uh, often a task. So, so in the different theory seminar, I mean, even though I wrote books that had theoretical chops as it were, and were sort of required to do so because that's how things got published. Nonetheless, some of the things I wrote my Maupassant book. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really love Maupassant and some of the chapters in there. I just, oh God, I just wince at the language I was using to to talk about him and uh, realize- the Theoretical that, le- language? The yeah, theoretic- just, well, just how I structured paragraphs, some of the words I would use to express a, a simple thought and make it say, well, this is a simple thought, I better make it complex. It was just uh, complexified things, in my view, unnecessarily. And mm-hmm. um, that was a learning process for me yeah. to have to unlearn a way of writing that I had picked up along the way from gra- after graduate school into, you know, through the 80s and into the 90s. And, and I try to get things back to a much more communication based approach and to try to use the theory intelligently and yes. um, in a non obfuscating fashion. Mm-hmm. And that requires that you have to under- kind of understand what you're reading and then saying, and, you know, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, as I said, I think if I haven't said this explicitly 
uh, already, I didn't understand what the hell was going on in Antioedipus. Mm-hmm. And um, and I confess that, uh, yeah, I might have a better handle on it, thanks to having read a lot of glosses on it. But nonetheless, it's still, they're still perplexing. I'd have a lot more fun reading Antioedipus now if I wanted to go back to it. Having been around Deleuze and, and Guattari's thought for, for quite a while, I could get a sense of, you know, where they're coming from, even if I couldn't necessarily explain every single sentence. But in any case, bringing that stuff, loading that stuff onto the to my students without a lot of preparation, that would the preparation needed to do that would take us away from the actual literature. Right. You know, seemed to be counter to what I wanted to do. So, you know, and you asked the question you asked sort of sort of coupled the uh, idea of friendship with this with pedagogy and you know the teacher-student relationship is always tricky and so one wants to be a friend but you know you have to you're in an authority position and you yep. see this playing out in Deleuze's seminars constantly you know he is, wants to be accessible I mean I've written a, an essay on called like, the time of the seminar and this is a guy who professed having the need to be constantly, almost literally in touch with yeah. the students as they're pressing in on him physically in these small spaces. You know, everybody knows that universities have large lecture halls, even in France. But Deleuze deliberately refused not to go to one of those amphitheaters. Oh. And because without that, by going to an amphitheater, he would be required to use mics, and he would be required to sort of sit in a structure that was the professor in the center yes, and all the people sitting up in, in these rows and rows, as opposed to seminar rooms where they're crowded in around him and behind him and in mm-hmm. front of him, but pressing in, which is the kind of contact that, that he preferred. And yet this worked counter to his own pedagogical needs mm-hmm. I mean, he was said in a number of different years and a number of different, I got these two cats here who are, who are oh, you- <laughs> scrambling with each other. Excuse me if I'm di- no, slightly distracted. No, but you're, in any you're case, fine. He said in a number of different years, he tried to take these hilariously draconian and unenforceable methods of winnowing out the students by just asking them voluntarily not to come. Oh. Uh, half of them. <laughs> and... Uh, and then a student would raise his or her hand and say, okay, you want to be able to have a seminar with half the people. How are we going to do that? Who's self-selects by yeah. what mechanism? Yeah. Well, you guys figure it out. It was, basically, it, was, <laughs> it was basically it. It was, I mean, there are a couple of these instances of this that are just like, you just listen, you can't believe what you're, you're hearing. But, you know, he was completely frustrated in his own, his own pedagogical approach. On one hand, he had this need to have this close contact and be able to have this immediate feedback from the students. And yet the feedback wasn't necessarily always welcome. It wasn't yeah. necessarily the feedback he wanted to hear. Sometimes he was not the soul of clarity. Sometimes, mm-hmm. guess what? His his conceptions were very, very obscure. Mm-hmm. And no matter what he did to try to render them clearly, people would sort of go, okay, I'm just going to write this in my note and hope for the best. Come. And he had his own philosophy of uh, the need for clarity. It's basically, don't ask questions until you've had time to let this settle. Yes. Which you understand, you may understand this three weeks from now, mm-hmm. 
So just wait three weeks. Don't be raising your hand right now <laughs> when, when, it's, when it's all dark and obscure for you. We all know that that's not how a professor is supposed to proceed. You know what I mean? Yes. I sit up there. I really want to be in touch with you. I really want to feel your closeness. But by the way, don't ask any questions prematurely. You know, you're, yeah. They're just going to bug the hell out of me. I mean, so there are so many amazing contradictions in his approach to things. And yet it is an extraordinarily welcoming. Having said all that, it's, it, it was an extraordinarily welcoming environment. And hence mm-hmm. the students glommed onto these seminars like crazy because this is a guy who really was trying to, in his own way and with his own limitations, trying to communicate with them as directly as he, as he possibly could. And with a humanity, he was not pretending to be anybody else. And not pretending to be the big, well-known, scholarly, intellectual professor. He was just Deleuze, this guy coming in off the street like everybody else coming in and teaching his, teaching his classes. And uh, yeah, I've gotten away from me and gotten to Deleuze. So no, I know. That's I, a I, good answer. I, I like it. I like I like the, the impersonal. Uh, and uh, it, it is interesting to think that the difference between, even in his three different venues, the difference between how Lacan would lead a seminar versus how... Deleuze would do it. You know, there's, there are points in, especially the first two seminars of Lacan's that I wince and I cringe and I feel bad for his, uh, the people in attendance because he's kind of, he's kind of mocking them. He's kind of, you know, berating them for either for not understanding, for having interactions and questions that are, that are seemingly beneath him. And Deleuze doesn't really come across that way, uh, even though he perhaps didn't have as, as much recorded material from students as as we have from from Lacan you can still get a sense that that wasn't the type of personality that he they have two different performance styles let's say sure one of the last things since we can begin wrapping up we, we've I hate to look at the clock and see oh, the, the time has, has flown I did want to ask about your book on on Cajun music and dance I wanted to know about the inspiration the genesis behind that and and yeah just uh because it's not a book I've been able to pick up yet so I, I would uh, like to hear about this story if you would if uh, you well would tell I was us. living in Louisiana I taught at Tulane for for four years 86 to 90 and while I was down there just happened to uh my wife and I, then wife and I, went and took some Cajun dance music lessons. And uh, okay. the guy who taught us the lessons was also a very enterprising young man named Rand Spire. And um, he would organize these uh, trips out to from New Orleans to, to Cajun country out near Lafayette and uh, two different kind of dance venues. And so we started going out to these and uh, got to be real good friends with him and a bunch of people who lived out there. And, and so, you know, just going out there experiencing the Cajun culture and, and, and dancing and so forth. You know, it was a, it was a great, just for me, it was a great experience to, uh, you know, have that recreational release from university life, but nonetheless being bitten by the academic bug, mm-hmm. um, I couldn't help thinking about stuff. And, um, some of the things I was thinking about manifested themselves in, in the Cajun dance, in the Cajun dance and music book. And, you know, coming up with the, you know, idea of, a, of what I came to call a space of affect and how, mm-hmm. you know, the, and this is not just specific to Cajun culture, it's to any kind of performance space can be transformed into a space of affect. The classroom can be formed, transformed into a space of affect. Deleuze's seminars versus Lacan's. There's a perfect example of clash, clashes of spaces of affect. How a dance floor itself could manifest itself 
and various ways with the different, even with the same kind of music, but in the different kinds of space and configurations with different kinds of crowds and so forth, a mm-hmm. festival crowd versus a small club dance hall versus a sort of a large club dance hall. And so there's all kinds of ways of the space of affect could manifest itself. And so that was one of the aspects of the book. I mean, I'm just picking the more Delusian uh, part because I did write one one of the chapters in there is sort of strict as full on Deleuze speak, whereas some of the other ones, one is devoted more to visual representation of Cajun culture and, Mm -hmm. and particularly misrepresentation. So I went at it a number of different perspectives to study the, the Cajun dance and music culture. But the space of affect was you know, sort of the one that owed the most to you know, my fre- frequenting Deleuze and, and Deleuze and Guattari thought. So, you know, so I you know, came out and I was, again, went to a conference, was talking to, actually went to MLA again, talking to somebody at MLA and they said, oh, wow, that sounds interesting. You got to talk to so-and-so. And one thing led to another and Duke University Press got interested in it. And so it eventually came out through Duke. And uh, I can't say that uh, it had much of a reception. I think in my heart of heart, I didn't think it would. I just thought it was too quirky. Wouldn't get, it didn't get support from Duke for various reasons I won't bore you with, but it also didn't get much reception from the the Cajun community either. Mm. And that I kind of expected because uh, there's right. a certain kind of, again, we'll use the words myopia just within that community that you know, someone from outside, and definitely that's me. Someone outside couldn't you know, really speak in that voice, even addressing that issue mm-hmm. right up front in the, you know, the introduction as a as an obvious limitation. Nonetheless, yeah, that's not gonna. Okay, sure, you're talking about it. Fine, that's not gonna work. And then okay, so then you go to I said okay, well at least I'm gonna have my Deleuze and Guattari chapter in here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but it is interesting that the MLA, you know, at least in two different instances, function as this means of encounter of of, Mm -hmm. of sort of conjuring these these encounters that, you know, that it reminds me a little bit of the story, too, of translating the Abbasadere. It just kind of these events that occurred and it's the dice throw, right? It's affirming that that chance. Well, you put yourself out there and um, hope that some of the things that you do will gain just enough i don't say recognition in the kind of award type of recognition but just awareness of other people becoming aware of it and maybe you know they'll say oh you know that's 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 interesting you know Mm -hmm. how can we follow up on that you know and i Mm -hmm. think nowadays you know with the different kinds of electronic means that we have i don't want to say it's a piece of cake because it's because god knows how many people are now out on the, on the airwaves and doing electronic things. It's just as, as almost a glut of that. But still, I mean, there's just all kinds of possibilities. I mean, I was a conference hound for many years. I think about 2010, I just kind of stopped. I mean, not that I stopped going to conferences. Of course, the Deleuze and Guattari conferences are so much fun and there are cool locations. And mm-hmm. so that that's, you know, all kinds of incentive to go to Deleuze and Guattari conferences. But, uh, you know, some of the MLA stuff, just haven't had the need, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in whereas in the '90s and the 2000s, I felt the need still was trying to get more stuff out there. Get mm-hmm. to a point where, okay, you know, I don't really feel the need to get more stuff out to get myself out there. You know, there's other things to the other things to do. Um, and um, even though I still enjoy, you know, contact with with French studies and so forth, 
you know, I'm really focused on just by dint of my opportunities, the Liz and Guattari research, you know, to stick stick with that. So sort of shifted over more to the Liz and Guattari, but, you know, in a more language oriented sense as well, because this mm-hmm. project with Dan has taken on its own life and, uh, you know, really shows you know, there's so much promise in it, if nothing else for the legacy aspect, but also this promise in it is possible research. I mean, I have, don't think I've found myself in an opportunity to do what I really consider to be primary source research before this point in my career. And uh, that's been just amazing to be listening yeah. to these things that not that they were hidden, right? They were hidden in plain sight. Yeah. And uh, to actually sort of say, okay, well, let's get these out there so that they're no longer hidden. And the, you just got to click your mouse a few times and they're right in your lap, but make no excuse for access anymore to get that yes. out there so that everybody, any scholar could have access to it. And then, you know, see how that goes. You know, I'd say by 2025, this site will be fully operational. I mean, it's not that it might be next year. Uh, if we keep moving to the pace race, we're going, uh, we're doing everything to slow down, doing everything we can to slow down. That's why yes. I take on all these cleanup tasks because mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to move too fast. But on the yeah. other hand, I do want to get as much available as fast as we possibly can. So, yeah. you know, we have to sort of, you know, we don't, rob, we don't rob Peter to pay Paul. We want to, you know, make sure that Purdue is gets the grant funding that it deserves. You know? Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> See, I, I love this. And this could be kind of a, a way for us to wrap up because it, your emphasis on legacy I think is important. You know, this this is something where I mentioned to you your influence of me. I think that with 2025 or before, I mean, because a lot of it's already out there. You and Dan are because he's another someone who inspired me to to get into what I'm interested in in French philosophy translation, Deleuze and Guattari. You with this legacy, you will influence, I don't want to say the word generation, a new generation of of scholars, of thinkers, and an older one who can now have this material and start putting it into dialogue with, I mean, it's still a pretty vibrant field, you know, Deleuze. And, and hopefully this will be my my question to, to leave off of. Once you're done with the Deleuze seminars, is there, I've talked to Gary Janosko about this, and he's keen on seeing it done. Is there any uh, interest with seeing some of the Guattari seminars that are out through Khmer? I took my hand and, and just sort of bootlegged two of the, the seminars, and I find them to be extremely lively and enlightening. So that would be something in the in the future if, if Purdue needs to add the G to the to the D. The D, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's that's that's in Dan's, you know. That'll be a Dan's, question for Dan. Dan's capable hands, yeah, because I mean, there's there's an administrative aspect to it yes. that uh, you know he's having to deal with, and uh, I helped him to the. Ex- Fortunately, most of these big institutions, all big institutions, have grant offices, so he had wonderful support from the people at Purdue. But you know, we still had to put the the pieces of the document together, and he did the he did the the grunt work to get those pieces into place. So then he could deliver it over to that office. And then they took the ball and then they worked their magic on it and sent it forward to NEH in a timely fashion. And, um, you know, that's having that institutional support is really the key 
so, you know, I, I think that uh, as long as Dan is willing, you know, I mean, he's it's not like, you know, we, we want to shut the operation down once the Deleuze translations are done. I mean, we really want to make sure it's a vibrant archive, you know, on that literal archival aspect to it. And that requires backup stuff. There's a lot of backup work that nobody who access the site really sees very much of. Yes, right. But um, nonetheless, it's it's there so that we're not losing documentation that, uh, I mean, we, of course, we back, we have redundant backups, each of us on our own side in terms of all the stuff we're doing. But, you know, there is that point of contact of a website and uh, God knows we don't want it to be uh, destroyed or hacked or, you know, and so, you know, we just want to make sure. And I think that Purdue is a kind of institution, the perfect kind of institution for that because they're a technological institution as well mm-hmm. as having a whole strong humanities side. And, you know, I think that that's great. And uh, I sort of wondered myself, wow, I could have had this idea 10 or 15 years ago, (laughs) but would I have wanted to go the route Dan has gone? You know, that takes a lot of energy and a lot of patience and and stick with it. He had to get two or three or four grants prior to the NEH, even applying to NEH. He applied to to NEH at least once and got turned down. Mm -hmm. So he had to keep going at it and coming back at it and and refining his application. So he got it uh, accepted the first time. And and the second time the comments were, uh, I was privy to the comments and wow, they were great. And it made us felt good because these grant evaluators got what we were doing. And Mm. um, so we felt really good, you know, just now to, to try to fulfill that promise and then continue possibly to go for another grant and, uh, you know, to, to finish the whole thing off. And then, yeah. like you said, okay, well, he's not the only guy out there. Why not another one? So yeah. we just have to see, though, you know, how that works. I'm not as familiar with the archive work. I only have seen what Chimera's put out. And so the material is actually much less than what we have of Deleuze. It's still palpable. There's, there's still a, a, a good deal there. So when I next talk to Dan... I'll, I'll try to to just incept that little idea that maybe maybe the the Guattari seminars can can be something in the future if if he's not tired of, of all the administrative work that you mentioned. Any last uh, thoughts or additions? I, I love the amount of detail you've gone into about this. I'm getting talked out, but uh... okay, yeah, <laughs> it's about the two hour mark. The two hour mark is about where things settle in. I'll just kind of relay. The fact that if last century was Delizian, maybe maybe this century can be Guatarian. You know, who knows? We'll see. see. Well, Charles, we we appreciate you coming on. I, I can't thank you enough for spending your time discussing these ideas. And I really uh, will we'll be in touch. So as soon as this is up and, and done editing, well, I'll I'll let you know. And um, it's it's just been a pleasure. Okay, great. Well, thank you. And uh, I'll send you guys, a, I'll send you this text I have as an ed- Dan and um, one of Robert Lucchese are going to be editing a volume for Edinburgh University Press called The Liz and Time. Okay. And um, so I've got an essay in it and it deals nice. with the seminar. Uh, awesome. So all I'll right. send you a copy of that because, uh, you know, it, it comes back to a lot of the stuff we we're talking about, but it gives all the juicy quotes. <laughs> Good. Enjoy the rest of your day. And again, we, we appreciate yes. your time you so immensely. Okay, you guys take care. Thanks again, Thanks. Charles. You right, too. Bye. Cheers. Bye. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is outcast. Okay. Okay.